0: to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee along with Amy Donaldson. Today we're speaking with Jennifer Nagy who is a research professor at the Weber State University, my alma mater. Uh, and she's ooh, been ooh. talking about something and, and doing research on something that I, honestly Jennifer, I, I thought it was gone. <laughs> or, or at least you know, technically speaking uh, redlining mm-hmm. in housing and the discrimination in housing. And uh, can we talk a little bit about, first of all thank you for being here. Can you give us some context on redlining and discrimination and what what it is?
1: Sure. So first of all, thank you for having me. A really simple description of redlining is the denial of credit for a mortgage loan to a creditworthy applicant due to the characteristics of the neighborhood in which it is located rather than the Qualifications of the applicant themselves.
0: So that is to say, if you're a person of color, rather per, uh, trying to move into a certain neighborhood that is generally predominantly white, they would, you know, make it so that you wouldn't be able to get a, a loan for that particular area.
1: So yes, in 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 general, but it's interesting that you had the example in an area that's predominantly white, right? A, a person of color trying to borrow trying to buy a home or get a mortgage loan in a neighborhood um, that's predominantly white because redlining was primary, er, primarily used to deny loans to people looking to buy houses in communities of color. And then hmm. a sister tool that was used to exclude people of color from predominantly white neighborhoods was the Racially Restrictive Covenant, and these are deed restrictions on residential properties that pretty explicitly prohibit the sale or rental of the home in in Weber County, the wording tends to be to anyone other than the Caucasian race.
0: So, do do these still exist in in, in that kind of explicit term?
1: So, they uh, my I, my research currently is to, on um, identifying and mapping these racially restrictive. Covenants in Weber County.
0: That's in Utah. Yeah, which
1: is in which is in northern Utah. Yes, and they these covenants were recorded through the county recorder on these residential properties. Um, all of the ones I've, I've found three. All of the ones that I've found were from the 1940s. And and once something is recorded, it's it's there, right? right? It's it's part of the history of that property so, so is it
2: in the property description or what when you say a covenant like what because I think of covenants as like a HOA type of rule so what, yes
1: and and oftentimes in fact in the three instances where I have found these covenants in Weber County the covenant is recorded by the original land developer prior mm-hmm. to the homes being built Built. Okay. Gotcha. Um so it's recorded on a subdivision and I've found mm-hmm. them anywhere from like a single block to, you know, six blocks of of homes in in this subdivision. So you might buy a home and not know that it has this covenant. That's correct. Yes. Wow, okay. So I don't know if HOA is is the correct term, but mm-hmm. it was recorded on all properties within the subdivision and mm-hmm. It included oftentimes these racial restrictions are, you know, a few sentences within a three-page document Mm -hmm. about other restrictions that the developer is putting on the property. Like how many stories high your home can be um, and how big your garage can be Mm -hmm. and what is the minimum um, square footage of a home that you can build on the property, et cetera, et cetera. So – Amongst all of these more technical restrictions, at least on some properties in the 1940s that I found in, in Weber County, they also had these racial restrictions um, included in these covenants.
2: Let me, let me back up just a second and ask you, you said redlining was essentially used to keep uh, people from buying property in mostly black or, or communities of color. H- help me out with that. Like, why would they restrict a white person from moving into a a black or a, 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 you know, mixed ethnicity neighborhood?
1: If they would deny a mortgage loan to a white person looking to buy a home in a community of color, I, my understanding is that that did not happen very frequently. Frequently. Mm -hmm. But I also understand that let's think of a neighborhood that's like 50/50, right? And 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 there were integrated neighborhoods, a few of of them in the 1940s and and then i think you can make a pretty strong argument that because of redlining, there became fewer of those integrated communities, but my understanding is that lenders, banks, and then also the federal government and the federal housing administration which is the big federal government program that insures mortgage loans to help expand home ownership even perceived integrated communities as poor credit risks, and it was difficult mm-hmm. for people of any race to get mortgage loans in integrated neighborhoods. That's that's my understanding.
0: So essentially, our federal government, and obviously locally, it became this way too. They were creating segregated communities throughout the country. Well, I mean, it's certainly here. Is it the federal government,
2: it, if it's the banks, if it's the lending institutions making the decisions?
1: Who's doing this? Help yeah. me with that. Yeah. So.
0: You got about a minute.
1: Okay. Do, no, no pressure. And we this,
0: can come back to it, but yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Federal Housing Administration, particularly in its early years, so 1934 to about 1950, basically wrote in and – um condoned redlining in its underwriting manual. So Mm -hmm. it advised against insuring mortgages from private lenders, right? Because that's the way the FHA works is it doesn't make the mortgage loans, but it insures the mortgage Mm -hmm. loans of private lenders. Um, And according to the FHA underwriting guidelines, the FHA was not to insure mortgage loans for neighborhoods that were subject to adverse influences. Put that in quotation marks. And among adverse influences was the infiltration of inharmonious racial groups. That is a quote from the 1935 um, FHA
0: underwriting manual. I've never been called inharmonious. Uh, that's that's we're engaged. That in is in some harmonious. serious code switching going on there, right? <laughs> when we come back, I'm going to have you discuss it a, a little bit more uh, because, again, I. It's hard to hear, but it's one of those things that we are better for learning. So yes, I, I, we should understand. We should understand, this. And, and I think this is how That's why creating. your research
2: is so important.
0: When we come back, we will. <laughs> when we come back, we will continue our discussion with uh, Professor Jennifer Nagy talking about redlining and its development over years and decades in our country. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason, Jason Lee, Amy Donaldson, speaking today with Professor Jennifer Nagy, who is studying, well, she is an economic researcher at Weber State University in Ogden, Utah, and she has been studying the redlining, which is uh, the, I mean, propagation of discrimination in housing, uh, l- lending, and how neighborhoods have been developed. And we, um, we've been talking about this, and I, I've kind of understood the history of this for a long time, particularly as it started back in the uh, 30s and 40s and right after World War II. And, and it has been such a huge influence on how neighborhoods across the country have actually uh, developed and why there was such prevalent segregation. And we've uh, this is one of Jennifer's first times kind of doing something like this, and she's been struggling a little bit because explain to us kind of how you feel about having to discuss this in such an open forum.
1: Yeah, so I feel like this is a difficult subject to talk about for several reasons, right? One is that we have willfully deferred this discussion for about 80 years, and so we just haven't practiced talking about this. Um, I think another reason is that it's ugly and it's shameful and I am an upper-middle-class white woman. I teach economics at Weber State University. My I have not found a racial covenant on my home, but I live about two or three blocks south in a neighborhood that does have, have covenants, and my house is about three or four years newer than those homes. And I, I think it's probably simply... The fact that the Supreme Court ruled these covenants unenforceable between those homes two blocks north mm-hmm. versus mine, um, that mine didn't have one. I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons. I, I I maybe shouldn't speculate on that. But the the point is is that I live in a neighborhood that's very close to these covenants and it was, likely,
0: struck- shaped the covenant, was right? likely shaped by yeah. the covenants, right? was likely shaped by
1: the, by the covenants and. As I'm learning what happens, I'm also learning how to talk about it. How to how can you talk about something like this in a dignified way that has such an ugly and shameful origin in history? Yeah, I, I guess I don't think it should be. I mean, I think we should be,
2: you know, civil and and I guess solutions minded. But I don't know that we have to be. Like, it is ugly. And I think it's just like anything in our history, right? Like, none of us perpetrated this. None of us were involved in the drafting of these covenants or any. I think that dragging it out into the sunshine, your research into how these things were worded, in what ways they did influence lenders or how they, how, because that's what I don't understand. I understand the concept of redlining, right? You couldn't get a loan in certain neighborhoods because of who you were. And I, I remember hearing it one, and I don't know that, That less than five percent of world war ii black world war ii veterans took advantage of housing benefits that they earned by fighting in world war ii we're
0: able to take advantage yeah we're
2: we're able to and 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 i just i just don't like i i under and i've read that triggered me kind of reading and researching that idea but i feel like people don't understand why they wouldn't be able to take advantage. Like, what was stopping them? How did this work? Right? Because people are very fond of saying there is no institutional racism, and this, right, you're, what you're doing is really defining what institutional racism looks like. You're showing us an example of how it was institutionalized. One example. One, just right? one, right, just right, right. one tiny in one county in Utah, right? Um, but I, but I think it's not an exception, right?
1: Correct. Redlining, both redlining and. Racially restrictive covenants were widespread practices across the United States, particularly in the northern and western states where we didn't have the explicit type of Jim Crow Mm -hmm. laws that they had in the South. I think it's a common misconception that this sort of institutionalized housing segregation was something that only happened in the South, but quite the contrary – both redlining and racially restrictive covenants were widely used and practiced um, in northern and western states. And in fact, this idea that I have to identify and map racially restrictive covenants for a county is not in any way unique. They've done this in Minneapolis and Heddenpin County. They've done this in Seattle. They've done this in Washington, D.C. They've done this in Johnson County, Iowa, and there's a handful of other other places that have done this this very thing and and made this history accessible and tangible to their communities. You
2: you probably looked at that research. What did you learn from looking at that those other cities and what they had done?
1: I have learned several things. I've learned that racial covenants came in a a variety of, of flavors. So sometimes, and again, all the ones that i found in Weber County were this particular flavor where the developer records the restrictions on all of the properties within the subdivision prior to development. But other cities have also found instances where after a neighborhood has been developed and people are living in the homes, the neighbors banned together and and f- organize and form a coalition to record a covenant on their property at at that time. So when you're looking for these covenants, um you know sometimes they're one of the first documents recorded on the on the property if it was recorded by a developer, but even if you don't find that, you kind of need to still keep looking because it's very possible that the neighbors got together and organized several years later to record a covenant as, as a group. And I, I don't know if your research
2: includes this, but I think it's important to point out that the reason this mattered was because there were a lot of things that flowed from what a community looked like, who lived there, how um, affluent it was or wasn't, including were there uh, stores, schools, whether or not it was a, a walkable community or whether or not you built a polluting, you know, factory right next door to it or or in the middle of it or cut it in half with a freeway. There are all those kinds of things that flow from who lives in a place. And I don't know, does your research include that or is it gonna come from that?
1: At this point, I have looked at relationships between Historical redlining. Again, I, I don't have a complete set of of covenants, so yeah, the because
0: the there's got to be a variety of those, yeah,
1: r- r- right. And and like I said, I've I've found three, and I've, I've been developing the idea for this research project for about a year, but I only got a grant to hire a research assistant to go to the recorder's office and dig some of this stuff up. Um, I think this is her third week on the job. Yeah. So I mean, this, um, this is this is very, very early stages of this.
0: So when we come back, I uh, want to discuss kind of historically what, what that has meant leading up to today yes. because we all know that uh, one of the best things you can do for yourself economically is to own property. But when you are unable to and institutionally made to, to buy property that's going to be inherently less valuable, it changes the dynamic of what the future looks like for people in that particular group. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion with economics professor Jennifer Nagy. You're listening to Voices of Reason. We are back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. Amy Donaldson, Jason Lee, speaking today with Weber State University economics professor Jennifer Nagy, who has been enlightening us on kind of the development and history of redlining, which is redlining was housing discrimination. It's beyond maddening for me because to me, it is one of the most important, say for slavery and Jim Crow, impactful institutional way, uh, I mean, methods of discrimination that have for decades and and today it is still one of the things that have created uh, the wealth gap yes. uh, in our country. Yeah. But you were mentioning that uh you know when you in doing some of your research that you you see as Amy brought up how neighborhoods were developed in a way that would like I said talk about this less valuable stuff where the infrastructure was different. Uh they they were in in certain neighborhoods they were allowed to have factories Whereas yeah. in other places, there was nothing like that. There were no freeways <laughs> splitting up.
2: They don't even want an apartment complex in their neighborhood. In those neighborhoods. Yeah, I, I do, know.
0: I want to speak to two yeah. things. One is Levittown, Pennsylvania, uh, no, Levittown New Jersey, which, if, if folks, if you haven't heard about this, Levittown was one of the, the first, after World War II, mass developments developed by a guy named Levitt uh, uh, just outside of New York. It became what was, quote, unquote, the American dream middle class community. Mm-hmm. And they had strict covenants on who could live there. And if you were black or brown, you they were not having it. And that is how wealth was developed for those people who lived there. And all of them were white and moving forward. And also uh, Edward Moses was it, was it either Edward or James Moses, James Moses. Uh, he was an administrator in New York City who the— Part of the reason why the uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers then moved to Los Angeles was because this guy decided we're going to build the freeway right through what was going to be Ebbets Field, and they wanted to try to develop a new park there. Walter O'Malley did, but they didn't do it. One guy made this decision; he changed the course of history, but also he made it so that those areas were going to be specifically the poorer areas of the borough.
2: Yeah, he made it's, them a place where people who had money didn't want to live.
0: Absolutely. Why would you want to live there? So, so
2: when you compared those zoning maps with
1: the redlining maps, what did you find? Right, so I'll I'll be clear that what I'm going to say I can really only speak to Ogden City in, yes. in Weber County. Mm-hmm. I, um, and because I'm an economist, I, I won't you want to, want to, be to overstate clear it. Yeah, that. that yeah. Right. I don't want to imply causation without sufficient data to back it up. Nevertheless, I think the correlations are strong enough that they're worth talking about. So you know, in Ogden, I've overlaid the historical redlining map, which was developed and created by the Homeowners Loan Corporation. Um, in the 1930s, um, which was a federal agency, and Ogden's present-day municipal zoning map, right? Um, and the zoning map says you know where you can have commercial development, where you can have residential development, where you can have industrial manufacturing development, and you can see that in areas, particularly on the west side of of town, that were much more likely to be the lower grades, the C and D grades, is where the present-day industrial and, and manufacturing zones of the city are, are located. And then over on the east side, if you're familiar with Ogden, particularly east of Harrison Boulevard, is you know, pretty much entirely single-family zoning. And that's, that's not the only area of the city that is single-family zoning. A lot of the northern areas of the cities and some other pockets uh, throughout the city are single-family zones, but you know Ogden also has uh, different categories of single-family homes based on minimum lot size, right? And so, mm-hmm. if the minimum lot size is large, um, you are going to have large lots. You are going to have tend to have larger homes, and then they're going to tend to be more expensive. And if you look on the redlining map for Ogden, the the highest grades indicating affluent white communities were in the southeast corner of that map and if you look at the present day zoning map of Ogden those high minimum lot size so so lowest and the largest lot size single family mm-hmm. zoning areas are entirely concentrated in the southeast corner of of Ogden and while you know the racially restrictive covenants were uh, ruled unenforceable In court in 1948, neighbors were still allowed to enforce them on each other until the Fair Housing Act of 1968, and the Fair Housing Act of 1968 is what made both redlining as a practice and private enforcement of racially restrictive covenants illegal. Uh, On the other hand, today we have, through zoning regulations, some pretty explicit economic segregation of our communities and because of the way that redlining and racially restrictive covenants denied families of color the opportunity to build wealth through the accumulation of home equity through home ownership there is a very strong correlation today between socioeconomic status and and race
0: If you realize how important that is Mm -hmm. over decades and decades, there becomes this disparity. And and I know there are some people who are fond of saying, well, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And, you know, blacks and Latinos, they've kind of that was years ago. They should have done better by now. And there There's always a suggested so, institutional uh was not years ago well I, no yeah, you, but what I'm saying is <laughs> there are all these uh, institutional impediments that were specifically designed to keep them down.
2: They just got better at hiding it. They were right. just up front and put writing it into covenant and code, but I think there there is just the hostility of moving into a neighborhood where you know you're not wanted, that's right, um and where you can't make friends or uh you get a you, you have a higher interest rate loan. Um, these are the ways in which it works. So, yeah, you can't deny somebody a loan in the 70s and 80s and 90s, but you can charge them more money. So and then the other thing is
0: a, almost impossible for them to afford it.
2: Yeah, because I mean, that's you're talking one, two, three hundred dollars. So they're paying, you know, you look at it percentage. It's only a half percent or it's only one percent. Right. But over the life of mm-hmm. a loan, that's a substantial amount of money and it reduces the. Opportunity they have to move into a nicer, quote-unquote, area, you know, where they're not living by a factory or whatever. But the other thing is um, insurance rates, homeowner's insurance. Um, I know uh, when my daughter uh, had a friend move in with her, she was living in Sandy in Jason's neighborhood. She moved to my neighborhood in Taylorsville, and her uh, insurance insurance rates went up for her car and the homeowners because – she was living in a less desirable neighborhood. And we're and talking what's, a
0: few miles away.
2: Yeah, and what's the difference in my neighborhood and his neighborhood is more white people live where he lives, and mine is definitely much more mixed-race neighborhood. So I think that there are all these tiny little ways in which you don't realize you're paying more in, for, for utilities in some cases, right? There's just all these small little ways in which it adds up, and you just can't afford that, right? It's not. It's not one thing. It's not just a racial covenant. It's all these other things overlaid on top of it. That are a
0: result of, of that c- covenant. When we come back, I want to uh, discuss a couple of more things and how this continues to be an impactful circumstance in throughout America, certainly not just here in Utah. We're speaking today with economics professor uh, I want to say Jenny, uh, Jennifer D- uh, Nagy, uh, talking about redlining and its impact uh, in our country and in our state. We'll come back. This is Voices of Reason. Back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason, Amy Donaldson, Jason Lee, speaking today with uh, Weber State University Econ Professor Jennifer Nagy, who is telling us about uh, the history of redlining in our uh, in our state and in our country. And uh, just real quick thing: first of all, the guy's name was Robert Moses. He once held; uh, he was uh, the city official in New York City uh, who decided transit and highways were the thing. So the way
2: to box people in,
0: well, box yeah. people in. Yeah. But it also helped develop economically in his mind. And a lot of people agree with him. He went he was a a Yale and, and a Columbia graduate, got a Ph.D. However, he he was not an engineer. But this is what he thought. He, he did engineer how uh, the city was developed. And Levittown is actually uh, on Long Island. So it's in New York, right outside of New York City. And it, all that other stuff I was telling you is the same. Is, is true. It just,
2: uh, and it was really like the first suburb. Like, it was and the until first then, mass people lived in right. rural, rural communities, or they lived near cities. And, and the you, the first suburban development was like, look at these beautiful. That's right. You know, they were very similar houses. Yeah, and, yeah. And it was on this large and cute plot of yard. land. And, yeah, yeah. And,
0: and one guy made all the money. Okay, but uh, Professor Daga, you had some ideas about. Redlining and and some other things in in terms of policy and how it has impacted uh, communities uh, going forward.
1: So I think one of the implications of this research is that um, redlining and racially restrictive covenants and other discriminatory housing practices very explicitly created both concentrations of communities of color, um, of poverty, of Disadvantage, but at the same time created these intense concentrations of affluence um, and predominantly white communities um, and privilege and power. And I hear oftentimes in policy circles people talking about deconcentrating poverty. And when we deconcentrate poverty, um, we get better education outcomes and we get better health outcomes. Um, But I think a really extremely important Piece that's often missed with that is looking at the other side of the coin, which is deconcentrating affluence, deconcentrating wealth. Um, because you know, if if we only work on on one side of that equation, um, and and we deconcentrate poverty, but don't allow people to move into more affluent communities. You're not. You're not going to make any headway.
2: Well, and I and to that, I think there's debates about this going on right now. I see in Salt Lake County, where are you going to build apartment buildings? Where Where does uh, everywhere in, density, in Salt Lake County? Why does apparently. how? Where does high density housing go? Right, and so I see these abandoned old buildings. There's one in my community right now. Uh, it used to be a Kmart, and they're talking about. Making it into high-density housing, right? We we have no more property in Taylorsville. We're definitely land and freeway locked. And so they're talking – we need housing. I know in my neighborhood – I walked my dogs this morning. Three people living in their cars just on my two-and-a-half-mile walk with my dogs this morning. Um, and I see this uh, throughout the summer, any warmer months. Um, and I think these are people that are working because they have cars. And they're gone during the day and then they just are sleeping in the neighborhood at night because people are not bothering them. Um, I would say if they went to a more neighborhood, they would probably get rousted by Better the police. They wouldn't be able to stay there. Yeah. So I think there's this big debate about, you know, what is this doing to us? We already have two freeways in our in Taylorsville. We already have the airport going overhead, um, you know. It's close to a liquor store, which is just a magnet for problems, right? So um, I think there's a big debate about whether or not this is – It's. It's. people keep saying it's not fair that we have to have all the apartments in our neighborhood. And I see this desperate need for housing and I'm like, well, let's build it here. We need to do something for these people that they can afford. And then I – look, listen to these developers and I see what they're charging for an apartment. And I go, I don't really know what the answer is. Like, maybe they should go to an east side neighborhood that doesn't have any apartments and build an apartment building. But I don't know that that's good for the people to live in hostility. I mean, how do you how do you decentralize wealth and decentralize poverty? I don't even know what that looks like.
1: Right. Um, And I, I don't know if if anybody knows what that looks like. Because it's a pretty um, widespread spread problem that c- communities struggle with, right? And and that type of not in ba- my backyard oh, yeah. attitude, um, and it it shows up most everywhere. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I I do strongly believe. Um, that apartment complexes um, but also single single family homes and a broad range of housing types belong in every community and that, and that's that's pretty politically infeasible, but I think it's important to say as um a uh, a goal mm-hmm. um. You know, here's the thing. I think. Go, go ahead. <laughs> ahead.
2: Yeah, I was. Just- I was just going to say. I,
1: I mean, I, I think at at several le I think, I think there are starting to be conversations at the state and federal levels, if not at the municipal levels, um, about finding ways to relax single family zoning laws. Um, It's it's a pretty big piece of of Biden's proposed job act. And um, I was just in a meeting yesterday where Senator Andreg and Senator Waldrop um, were talking about a proposed housing legislation. And I just forget the number of the bill, but Mm -hmm. I can send it to you later. That that at least was starting some discussion uh, about relaxing single family zoning restrictions. And there is pretty good evidence. In the literature that in communities that allow a more broad range of housing types in their residential zones tend to have more racially and economically integrated neighborhoods. So it's not the only effective tool, but it it can be an effective tool for for deconcentrating affluence. But because of but because of NIMBYism, it's it's politically difficult. I have decided to try to take a small stab at this. Um, and I think one of the interesting things about racial covenants is that they were powerful because neighbors enforced them on each other. They worked together to establish and enforce this type of exclusion. And I think a really big question is can we throw that even slightly in reverse and work together as neighbors? To establish and um, enforce norms of inclusion and and pr- affirmatively further fair housing in our communities, and I have started to do some organizing around this. I have a website which is neighborsfurtherfairhousing.org, dot org, and. I have some information about racially restrictive covenants and ways that you can get involved. I have a, a Facebook group where people can can get involved. And, and I want to see, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not promising, nothing is, is going to completely throw this in reverse. But, but can this, neighbors working together were part of the problem. Can they be part of the solution? Can we work together to Build more inclusive communities, and I have some ideas of how to do that. But I'm already over. So
2: awesome! No, no, you're. That's I love that idea. I hope I. I want to join your Facebook group, even though I don't live in Weber County. Um, and I, I, you know, we didn't say this, but Weber County is actually a pretty diverse county when you, when you take a look at Utah, Weber, Salt Lake, and Carbon. <laughs> Or the carbon?
0: You really yeah. want to do that? Yeah. There's no black people in carbon count.
2: I didn't say diverse. I didn't say black. Okay. Yeah. Well,
0: well, diversity, too. Di- uh, join us again for the next episode of the Laban Project Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about our show, please contact us via email at vormed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at adonsports and at Lee one Our show's Twitter handle is at podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, and you can... Find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast in all the places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We'd love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project.